This is Guns and Butter. Let me issue and control a nation's currency, and I care not who makes its laws. So that's the whole goal here, is to privatize uh, the creation of money and lend it to governments and to individuals. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Financial Hijacking of America. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, and author. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System, and How We Can Break Free. She is the author of many books on natural healing, as well as numerous articles on the financial system. In Web of Debt, her latest book, she analyzes the Federal Reserve and the Money Trust. Ellen Brown spoke at the Understanding Deep Politics Conference in Santa Cruz, California, on May 16, 2010. Her talk, Economic 9-11, The Financial Hijacking of America. Ellen Brown. My PowerPoint kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, so I practiced it, and it was two hours. So anyway, I decided to cut out the historical part, so I'm just going to do that very quickly. The history of banking, how we got to where we are today, what the basic problem is, and where we need to go for a solution. So the problem is, for um, 300 years, or several thousand years, depending on if you want to go back to the Sumerians, but if you're just counting paper money, for 300 years we've had two competing money systems vying for dominance. One of them is publicly issued money, money issued by governments or by communities or by the people, and the other is uh, privately issued money, money issued by banks and lent to the people. So today, the bankers have pretty much won. All of our money, except for coins, is created by banks in the form of loans. 99.99% of the M3 money supply is created by banks. It's all debt. Basically, there is no money in our system. It's all debt to bankers, and I'll explain how they create this. So the question is, how do we get out of that, or how do we reverse that? That's where they get their control. That's why the bankers own Congress, because they have the power to create our money supply. So we have to get that back, and how do we get that back? And that's what I want to address. But since this whole conference is all about 9-11 9-11 and, you know, controlled demolition and stuff. I wanted to talk about uh, a controlled demolition that we're not so familiar with. It's another 9-11. Uh, September 11th, 2008 is one you may not have heard of so much. That was the day that um, Lehman Brothers got bombed in the stock market. Lehman Brothers actually went bankrupt on September 15th. But you can see that their stock collapsed on the 11th. It was heavily, heavily short-sold and naked short-sold. Naked short-selling is illegal, except by market makers. There's an exception for market makers, which I don't have time to explain. But basically, the, the big market makers are the big rivals of Lehman Brothers. So it's like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Uh, Naomi Klein calls it the shock doctrine, where... We learned from 9-11 that that a big shock to the system can be used to justify uh, relinquishing rights or relinquishing individual rights or relinquishing sovereign rights, national rights. Um, So Lehman sent a shockwave around the world. 
It was considered a catalyzing event. After that, any banks too big to fail would be rescued, even at the expense of the taxpayers. I mean, we thought that the banks were bailing us out. In fact, of course, we're bailing the banks out, and we're, we're the security for the banks rather than the reverse. Um, so you might ask, what, what was so bad about Lehman? In fact, they were highly successful up until 2007. Um, we know now that they actually were cooking the books, you know, the same as Enron was doing. I mean, they were in pretty bad shape, but they weren't really in worse shape than, than the other Wall Street banks. So why did they get targeted? According to their CEO, Richard Fult, um, they were the victim of uh, rumors and of heavy naked short selling. And the SEC confirmed that, that um, there were... As many as 32.8 million Lehman shares had been sold and not delivered. That means naked shirt selling, which was more than a 57-fold increase over the prior year's peak. That was by September 11th. Um, so what naked short selling is, is where you... Short selling is where you sell a stock you don't own, and then you buy it back later. So you buy it back at a lower price, supposedly. I mean, you're assuming it's going to go down. So you sell it at one price, and you think you'll cover by buying it back at the lower price, and, and you keep the spread, the difference between what you sold it at and bought it back for. In naked short selling, you never buy it back. So you just there's just a lot of sales of shares of stock that you never really, never really had. Another way in which they were bombed or, or that they were hit at that time was that J.P. Morgan and Citigroup were the big short-term lenders to Lehman Brothers, and they refused to lend without more collateral. And just recently, in March, um, the trustee in bankruptcy for Lehman Brothers said that said that uh, Lehman actually had the collateral. I mean, they they were actually over collateralized, so so that the shareholders actually would have a good claim against um, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup for for demanding this extra collateral at that time. Now, you might wonder why it matters um, whether the other banks will lend to a bank. And that's what I'm going to get into, that the banks don't have the money. This whole system is its a shell game. And so they're all balancing this money created on their books and covered by borrowing from the other banks. So if the other banks won't lend to you, then you go down. They all need the support of each other to keep this whole shell game going. Now, we had the same thing happen with Bear Stearns in March. So, in fact, that was probably the first catalyzing event. Uh, Bear Stearns, too, had the collateral. And, in fact, they were bailed out by J.P. Morgan. Uh, originally, the Federal Reserve was going to lend to Bear Stearns directly, and then they changed their mind, and they lent the money to J.P. Morgan to buy out Bear Stearns. So J.P. Morgan got the stock at $2 a share. Oh, later, it was $10, but... At $2 a share, it was down from $133. So effectively, it was called a bailout, but really it was a hostile takeover. Um, the shareholders got wiped out on this deal. And again, Bear Stearns actually had the money. In fact, it was Bear Stearns collateral that was used for the loan that J.P. Morgan got the money from. So really it was a bailout of J.P. Morgan. Uh, ben Bernanke said that... Um, the Bear Stearns bailout was necessary to prevent a massive wave of cross defaults and chaotic unwinding of investments across U.S. markets. So you might wonder what that means, but that's the point that they're all, it's this interwoven web of, 
sleight of hand. There's nothing to it. There's no money behind it except it's all debt to each other. I'll, I'll show how that works later. But So so over the whole summer, uh, Bernanke, who is head of the Fed, and uh, Henry Paulson, then head of the Treasury, were working for a bailout of the sort that we actually eventually got, the TARP bailout. But they couldn't interest Congress in it. The Congress they just didn't think it was all that all that necessary. So what they needed was an economic 9-11, and that's what they got. And in fact, um, a year later in the New York Times, there was this article, and the title was, Lehman had to die, it seems, so global finance could live. So Lehman was actually sacrificed. It was the victim. And that's what the judge in the bankruptcy case said. Lehman Brothers became a victim, in effect, the only true icon to fall in a tsunami that has befallen the credit markets. You might wonder why one bank going bankrupt would have the effect of requiring every bank after that to be bailed out. Um, So Paul Kanjorski in um, February of last year was on C-SPAN, and this this irate caller called in and said, where's my bailout? She said, "Uh, you know, I make under $10 an hour. I thought they were supposed to bail out the homeowners, and here we're bailing them out. And so Paul Kanjorski said, well, that was a uh, misconception, that it was never about bailing out the homeowners, that what happened was this massive bombing of the or collapse of the money market funds. Here's what he said then. On Thursday at about 11 o'clock in the morning, the Federal Reserve noticed a tremendous drawdown of money market accounts in the United States to the tune of $550 billion being drawn out in a matter of an hour or two. That's like half a trillion dollars. The Treasury opened up its window to help. It pumped $105 billion in the system and quickly realized that they could not stem the tide. We were having an electronic run on the banks. They decided to close the operation, close down the money accounts, and announce a guarantee of $250,000 per account so there wouldn't be further panic out there. If they had not done that, their estimation was that by 2 o'clock that afternoon, $5.5 trillion would have been drawn out of the money market system. That's like half the economy. Um, of the United States, would have collapsed the entire economy of the United States, and within 24 hours, the world economy would have collapsed. It would have been the end of our economic system and our political system as we know it. (laughs) So supposedly that was why Henry Paulson fell to his knees, you know, to begging for this, this bailout that we absolutely had to have it. Now, the money markets are essential for businesses. That's where they, all businesses, or most businesses do these very short-term loans where they borrow to, to meet their payrolls. And if they, if they can't borrow from the money market short-term, then they have to close their doors. So, so businesses who are having this crisis on their hands. Uh, the money market money is supposed to always be worth a dollar. If you have a stockbroker and sometimes you, you have money in cash and he'll just put it in the money market. I mean, they don't even necessarily ask. They just The assumption is that the money market, a dollar is a dollar. You know, it's at least a dollar and you get a little tiny interest on that. But in fact, it fell to 97 cents the day that um, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And so there was a big run on a big money market fund. But that was on Monday. And then that fund closed down uh, temporarily. That was the reserve primary fund. So on Tuesday, AIG was bailed out by the Federal Reserve for $80 billion, and the stock market actually went up. 
And then it was on Thursday that we had this massive bombing of the money market. So you might wonder what happened on the 17th. It was like they hadn't done enough damage. The stock market was going back up, so they had to do something else. Um, so I'll get to that. But in the meantime, here's uh, Representative. This is Marcy Capture. Democrat from Ohio. Sent to address the House for five minutes and to include extraneous material in the record. Without objection, so granted. Mr. Speaker, here's the latest reality game. Let's play Wall Street bailout. Rule one, rush the decision. Time the game to fall in the week before Congress is set to adjourn and just six weeks before an historic election so your opponents will be preoccupied, pressured, distracted, and in a hurry. Rule two, disarm the public through fear. Warn that the entire global financial system will collapse and the world will fall into another Great Depression. Control the media enough to ensure that the public will not notice that this bailout will indebt them for generations, taking from them trillions of dollars they earned and deserve to keep. Rule three, control the playing field and set the rules. Hide from the public and most of the Congress just who is arranging this deal. Communicate with the public through leaks to media insiders. Limit any open congressional hearings. Communicate with Congress via private teleconferencing calls. Heighten political anxiety by contacting each political party separately. Treat members of Congress condescendingly, telling them that the matter is so complex that they must rely on those few insiders who really do know what's going on. Rule four, divert attention and keep people confused. Manage the news cycle so Congress and the public have no time to examine who destroyed the prudent banking system that served America so well for 60 years after the financial meltdown of the 1920s. Rule five, always keep in mind the goal is to privatize gains to a few and socialize losses to the many. For 30 years, in one financial scandal after another, Wall Street game masters have kept billions of dollars of their gains and shifted their losses to American taxpayers. Once this bailout is in place, the greed game will begin again. But I have a counter game. It's called Wall Street Reckoning. Congress shouldn't go home to campaign. It should put America's accounts in order. Okay, there's more of that. But <laughs> she was good. I thought she was great. You're listening to attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Financial Hijacking of America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I, I got ahead of myself. So, so what happened on the 17th was that there was another massive, massive bombing of the stock market with naked short sales. Um, 23% of trades on the 17th were uh, naked short sales, failed trades. That means they were never covered. So somebody orchestrated that. That was, that was done intentionally. And then you might also wonder why uh, Ben Bernanke didn't just step in and say, well, we'll cover the money market funds. We'll guarantee them. 
But he said he didn't have the authority. But the funny thing was, a week later, after the TARP was passed, he did exactly that. He stepped in and said they were creating a special lending facility to buy commercial paper. So that was actually what stopped the bleeding, what prevented the market from collapsing, and not this $700 billion that Congress promised to the banks. So they got this, like Marcy Capter uh, was saying, they got this quick money with no strings attached. So they got, they got this bailout. So that was what the whole thing was about, was to, to get this sort of underwriting of the too-big-to-fail banks with no strings attached, and this instilled fear that if we dared to not bail out any of the big banks, we would have the same near disaster that we had with the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the collapse of the money market. Now, another question was, where did the Federal Reserve get this $80 billion that they suddenly bought um, AIG with? AIG is a big insurance company, the world's biggest insurance company. But, of course, the reason they were in trouble was not because of, like, auto insurance or house insurance. It was because they had gotten into derivatives. So that was the, the part that um, they needed to be bailed out from. So this is uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi. She, too, wanted to know where the money came from. She said... Many of us were, uh, shall we say, if not surprised, taken aback when the Fed had $80 billion to invest to put into AIG just out of the blue. All of a sudden, we wake up one morning, and AIG has received $80 billion from the Fed. So, of course, we're saying, where does this money come from? Oh, we have it. And not only that, we have more. So it's a mystery even to Congress that, that the Fed can cough up this money at will. So there was a lawsuit brought by Bloomberg to find out where they got the money, who it went to, what the conditions were, and the Federal Reserve refused to say. They said that um, that the documents were held by the New York Fed, which was not actually a um, public agency, and therefore it wasn't subject to um, a Freedom of Information Act request, and that the suit involved protected trade secrets. So the question is, like, whose trade secrets and what secrets? We know it involved the banks. So the biggest secret of modern banking was revealed, and this is my favorite quote, from uh, Sir Josiah Stamp, governor of the Bank of England in the 20s. He said, the modern banking system manufactures money out of nothing. The process is perhaps the most astounding piece of sleight of hand that was ever invented. Banking was conceived in inequity and born in sin. Bankers own the earth. Take it away from them, but leave them the power to create money, and with a flick of a pen, they will create enough money to buy it back again. There, there are many, many quotes, and you know, I had to call down my quotes, but this is a good one from uh, Robert B. Anderson, who was Treasury Secretary under Eisenhower. He said, when a bank makes a loan, it simply adds to the borrower's deposit account in the bank by the amount of the loan. The money is not taken from anyone else's deposit. It was not previously paid into the bank by anyone. It's new money created by the bank for the use of the borrower. So it's done by double-entry bookkeeping. Um, So if you go to the bank and you want to buy a house, let's say, for $500,000, you'll sign a mortgage, and the bank will count that as an asset to themselves because you have promised to pay this money back over time. It's a negotiable instrument, a paying asset. 
so they write that on one side of their books as an asset. And on the other side of the books, they write the same 500000 as a liability to themselves because they have promised to pay out if you write checks on, on that account. So at the bottom, it comes out to zero. So they say, you know, they haven't, they haven't created anything. But that 500000 that you're going to write checks on is what goes out into the economy and circulates as our money supply. So all of our money is like this, where it's all owed back to the bank, and the bank itself is on the hook for it. So it's a huge uh, shell game where they're keeping all these balls in the air at once. Uh, the Federal Reserve, in a booklet called Modern Money Mechanics, uh, explained how this was done. This is an excellent chart to understand it. There's a, a reserve requirement. The reserve requirement keeps dwindling, but it's supposed to be 10%. So that means the banks are supposed to hold back 10% of their deposits. Now, people think that the bank takes in deposits and lends that money, and, and in fact, that is what they used to do back in, you know, Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. That was where he got into trouble because he was taking the money of Mrs. Jones and lending it to Mr. Smith. But today, you never walk in the bank and they say, I'm sorry, you, you know, you'll have to come back in 30 years because we just lent your money to Mr. Smith. It, your money is always there. So you can see from this chart, uh, the original $10,000 in this chart that that's, goes into the bank stays in the bank. You can see that that $10,000 is always there. That's your deposit. And then the bank lends 90% of that. So they're not lending 90% of your money. They're lending a sum equal to 90% of your money. And then that money goes into another bank, or maybe your own bank, but anyway, it gets moved around from accounts. So say it goes into another bank, and then that bank counts it as a deposit, and it can lend 90% of that and then 90% of that and 90% of that. So this goes on about 20 times until your $10,000 becomes $100,000 in loans. Now, that's the, that's the conventional model, the textbook model. But that's not really how it, how it works today. It, it looks more like this, um, where, in fact, when you go to the bank... Say you're a business and you're a good client of the bank and they know that you're a credit-worthy borrower. If one of their good clients, a corporate client, walks into the bank and wants a loan, they just write it. They just give it. They don't check to see what they have in the way of deposits. They just write the loan into the, into the account of their customer. And then when the, um, that customer writes checks on the account and the checks leave the bank, then they have to clear so they're supposed to, they usually clear through the Federal Reserve or some clearing agency. In fact, the Federal Reserve started clearing checks because in the 30s, when banks suddenly didn't trust each other, they wouldn't honor each other's checks because they, they knew that they probably didn't have the money, so they figured the other bank probably didn't have the money either. So the Federal Reserve set up this system where they would all clear through the Federal Reserve, and so then you knew that they had the money, and that's why you're supposed to keep this reserve over there in the Federal Reserve, although it's not real money that you put in the Federal Reserve. It's really just an accounting accounting device. So, so you're supposed to have the same money coming in that you have going out, so you're supposed to have an equal number of deposits coming in as your check's going out. But if you don't have that, you, the bank... Um, you can just borrow it from the other banks. And right now, 
the Fed funds rate is zero to 0.25 percent. So they are borrowing from each other at almost nothing. They're almost getting this money for free. And you know the other banks will always have the money. In my little model here, say say you have three banks and they each create $1,000 on their books as a loan and it goes out as a check into the next bank. So each one has $1,000 coming in and $1,000 going out. So their check's clear. It looks like they've got the money. But they all just, what they did was they just created $3,000 out of nothing. But it only works because they, they have each other to shift it around and backstab it. But it actually, it's, it's not a bad system. I mean, I think the only thing bad about it is it's private. But if it's public, and you acknowledge that all we're doing is creating credit, that all of our money is basically you want the community to trust you to invest in your little business. So, so you go to the great computer in the sky, you know, the, the community lending facility, and you say, here's my business model, and I'm going to pay this back doing this and this. And, and so you want the community to trust you with their credit while you employ workers and materials to build something, and then you'll pay it back out of, out of the thing you produce. That's, that's the basic model that has made America great, except for the fact that it's run through these private banks that are pretending to have the money and that are gouging us for interest for money that they didn't really have. Plus, they themselves are in, in trouble because it's a pyramid scheme. They always want more money back than they put out there because of the interest. So since, since borrowing is the only source of money in the system, uh, they have to continually find more and more borrowers. This is a part I'm leaving out of my PowerPoint. But, uh, so this Ponzi scheme, it's essentially a pyramid scheme, has gone around the world until we've indebted everybody. And then it came back to us where um, they, they got into the housing bubble, and then when they ran out of good borrowers, um, they got into the subprime borrowers, and then they wrapped it in derivatives. So it's all this desperate attempt to find more and more borrowers. It's a parasite, and the parasite is running out of its food source. So it, it could work. I'll get to that. But it did work in Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin's Pennsylvania, when it was a publicly owned system. So today, all of our money, this is a M1, M2, M3. This is a chart of our money supply. Um, all of it except... This very tiny bit at the bottom is created by banks. The, the blue at the bottom is M1, which is what you normally think of as money, which is uh, coins, paper dollar bills, and checkbook money. Well, paper dollar bills are already created by the Federal Reserve and lent to other banks, which then lend them to the government and to us. So they are the borrowed into existence, and they are owed back. The only thing that's not owed back to somebody is coins, which is just a very marginal bit. And all this other stuff isn't even paper. It's just um, accounting entry money that's been created on the books of banks. So it's all a confidence trick, and it depends on confidence to work. So the way the banks um, maintain this confidence is in 1913, they set up the Federal Reserve to backstop a collapse or to backstop bank runs when people would periodically figure out that the banks didn't have the gold. That was when we were on the gold standard. Um, or the other alternative is bailouts like we've got today. Nobody even thinks we're on a gold standard anymore. Um, and the Federal Reserve itself wasn't sufficient. So, so now we've got taxpayer bailouts. So Wall Street has gotten 
a huge amount of money out of the deal. It, originally, it was $700 billion. It quickly went to $800 billion with pork. Um, by the summer of last year, loans, commitments, and guarantees were $24 trillion. And I saw recently that actual payouts were $4.6 trillion. You're listening to attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Financial Hijacking of America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So getting back to the conspiracy theory, I, I'm afraid I have to leave a bunch of stuff out of it. I mean, there's so many interesting ramifications of this, but I want to follow through on what happened to Lehman Brothers. Um, who pushed Lehman Brothers over the cliff without a parachute? It could have been J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, the other banks that obviously profited uh, hugely from this bailout. But there is, there is another set of players here, and those are the actual rivals of Wall Street itself, which would be the city of London and the old European bankers. Um, over the weekend, Lehman Brothers was in negotiations to be bought out by Barclays Bank. Well, first of all, of course, the Fed and the Treasury, or that would be um, Paulson and Bernanke, refused to bail out Lehman. They had just bailed out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they knew they were going to have to bail out AIG. So they refused to bail out Lehman because they said, well, we can't bail out everybody. Um, and so Barclays Bank was in negotiations. But the Fed wouldn't agree to guarantee the loan. And at the very at the last minute on Sunday, Alistair Darling, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer or the basically the treasurer in England under Gordon Brown, said, no, we, you know, we're not going to approve that because you have to have shareholder approval and there hasn't been time for shareholder approval. I mean, that was a reasonable thing to say, but the thing is that it was at the last minute when there was nothing else, no, no other alternative but to put it into bankruptcy. So you could argue that the British did it. I mean, we're not sure who did it, but it could have been the British. And interestingly, Darling also could have saved Northern Rock and didn't. And Northern Rock was the catalyzing event in England a year earlier, almost on September 11th. It was actually September 12th that the Bank of England refused to, to extend credit to Northern Rock. And then on the 13th, we had this massive bank run, which was the first bank run they had had for 141 years. And then, finally, the Bank of England said, okay, okay, we'll, we will extend credit to you and everybody else. We could see what was going to happen. There were going to be massive bank runs unless the Bank of England, unless they had a bailout of the banking system. And so they've been bailing them out ever since, just as we have. And what Alistair Darling had to do with that was that as the treasurer acting um, on behalf of the government, they actually own their the Bank of England, unlike our Federal Reserve, which is not owned by the government, but is owned privately by a consortium of banks. So the government could have said, could have ordered the bank to bail out Northern Rock, but they didn't. And the reason was apparently that Gordon Brown had been instrumental in making the Bank of England independent in the 90s. Uh, He was credited with that, so they were preserving his policy. Now, Gordon Brown himself has often called for a new global financial order. In 2007, he called for a new world order reforming the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, and the G7. At the G20 conference in October of 2008, he called for a new Bretton Woods, creating global governance. 
Um, And in 2009, he said, Sometimes it takes a crisis for people to agree that what is obvious and should have been done years ago can no longer be postponed. It's shock therapy. We must create a new international financial architecture for the global age. The threats and challenges we face today are the difficult birth pangs of a new global order. Well, it's just such odd language. You would never... I mean, you would never talk about a new global order. Like, don't worry, it's just the new global order. It's just, it's language you would not use unless you had routinely gone to meetings, secret meetings or private meetings, where people are talking about the new world order and that this is this is what we're tending toward and this is what we're trying to do here. And we have the the famous Rockefeller statements that are quite similar. In 1994, he said. Uh, Rockefeller, David Rockefeller said, we are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. And then in his memoirs in 2002, he said, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I'm proud of it. I mean, they actually believe in this stuff, that the New World Order is a good idea. Um, So we can trace that back farther to Carol Quigley in the 60s wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope. He was an insider who was groomed by the international bankers. And he, too, actually thought this was a good idea, the whole New World Order thing. He was actually Bill Clinton's mentor at Georgetown University. Um, But the one thing he disagreed with the international bankers, as he called them, was that they wanted to keep it all secret, and he thought that, you know, he should write about it. So he wrote this 900-page tome that was immediately suppressed. I mean, you can it was very difficult to get until somebody found a pirated copy and republished it, and now you can get it. Um, But he said in this book, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. He went on, each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans. So that's what we have going on now, where uh, he said somewhere else in the book that what they would do would be to create the money privately and make it look like it was created by governments. So governments would get the blame when everything goes wrong, but in fact, all the money is created by these private central banks, or even when they're publicly owned, they're still separate, like the Bank of England, which is independent. It creates the money and lends it to the government and to individuals and corporations. So the source of the money is this private banking cartel. He went on, uh, the apex of the system was to be the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Now, the Bank for International Settlements is very controversial. It was uh, in the 1940s, the U.S. government and uh, John Maynard Keynes tried to get it shut down because they had been accused of laundering the Nazi gold uh, during World War II. They didn't get it shut down. I have to be careful what I say because my daughter lives two blocks from the Bank for International Settlements in, in Switzerland, and she's actually trying to work with them to get like alternative funding for. She she works for a UN NGO, and she goes, "Mom, you got to be careful what you say." <laughs> so, so you know, they're good people that work in all these institutions, and I, even Gordon Brown. I heard him give a speech recently. I mean, I heard it on the internet, and. 
it was very reasonable. He was talking labor and stuff. I mean, it was very good, and he was saying all the right things. So I, I don't want to say that anybody's like inherently evil or a huge crook or whatever, but there is another system going on here, an attempt to um, create the money system of the world privately. And it's just not a good idea. It's not working out. And we need to oppose that, and we can, we can oppose it. What we need to do is set up our own model so that we're not dependent on the private banks. If we set up publicly owned banks that, that work the same way they do, their banks work, then we don't need to bail them out. We can just let them uh, die by attrition. We can let them go bankrupt and nationalize them and turn them into a public utility, which is what credit should be. Credit is the credit of the people, the credit of the community. It should be a public utility. So today, the, the Bank for International Settlements is indeed, as Quigley foresaw, the capstone of the international banking pyramid. It has 55 member nations, and it sets the rules for all these banks. We saw the power of the Bank for International Settlements to make or break economies and banks in 1988 when um, the Japanese banks were the world's largest creditors. The Japanese economy was booming and the banks were, were huge and everybody owed money to Japan. And then um, the Bank for International Settlements raised the capital requirement by 2%, from 6% to 8%. didn't look like that big of a deal, but it was enough to wipe out the Japanese banks. They, they were crippled, and they've never recovered. They were actually nationalized, although they didn't use that word, but that was the only way they could save the banks because they just didn't have the capital to make the loans. The way the capital requirement works is you're supposed to have $8 of capital for $100 in loans. So the way our banks got around that was if you have your $8 in capital, they would take the $100 in loans, bundle them up in uh, mortgage-backed securities, and sell them off to investors. And then they could make another $100 in loans, and then another $100 in loans based on that same $8. Um, but what happened was, you know, then they got into the whole subprime. Since they were selling off these loans, they didn't care whether they were good loans or not, because they weren't going to be responsible for them. The, the sucker investors were going to take them. So then they started selling to anybody in sight just to keep this whole bubble thing going. And that's, that's when the, the Wall Street banks got out of hand. So this is the securitization process that we got into. So the, that first uh, change in capital requirements was called Basel I. But the Bank for International Settlement, well, then they came out with Basel II. This is the one that killed our banks. Basel II uh, was called value-at-risk accounting, so they changed accounting standards. Um, the, the two Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed in the summer of 2007, and that's when we knew we had a problem, and markets got very shaky, and everybody started worrying about these collateralized debt obligations. Um, but actually, in October of 2007, our stock market was the highest ever. And then in November, that's when it collapsed. Well, the reason it collapsed was that was when our Financial Accounting Stability Services Board, the board that sets the accounting standards for the U.S., adopted this Basel II value-at-risk accounting, or it was called mark-to-market accounting. So that meant that there was a sudden rule change. So all the banks that had all these loans outstanding based on capital that they had valued according to 
whatever they wanted. Nobody really knew what these derivatives... I know I'm getting into things that I haven't explained, but you have to read my book to understand all these details. But the point is that it was... uh, They changed the counting standards in the middle of the game. So... So even though it was actually probably a good thing, the mark-to-market rule was probably a good idea, you want banks to be valuing their their capital according to what the market will fetch today. The thing is that it changed the rules of the game in the middle of the game. So they had all these loans outstanding based on this certain amount of capital, and then all of a sudden they didn't have the capital anymore to make loans. So they were called zombie banks. They couldn't loan because they no longer had capital. And that, that caused the credit freeze, and we, we never really have recovered from that on Main Street. Borrowing has never been what it was before 2007. So then we had the bailout. So you could argue that the whole bailout, I mean, you could see Bernanke and Paulson as really doing what they had to do to bail out our banks because of this sudden change in accounting rules that was imposed from abroad. You might even ask why we need the capital requirement imposed by um, an institution in Switzerland. And I would say you really, you wouldn't. You could, we could set up our, a whole different model of banking where we wouldn't need any of that. But those are the rules of the game right now, and that is what collapsed our system. Um, so you wonder if you really want the Bank for International Settlements in control, whether or not they're doing what they think is the right thing. Um, anyway, they are in control. They're now setting the rules through their Financial Stability Board, um, which echoes a famous statement by one of the Rothschilds. Maybe it was Mayor Amschel Rothschild. Maybe it was Nathan Rothschild. Maybe nobody said it at all, but it's so famous that it totally, it totally characterizes their mindset. Uh, let me issue and control a nation's currency, and I care not who makes its laws. So that's the whole goal here, is to privatize uh, the creation of money and lend it to governments and to individuals. Our leaders have warned against that for centuries. Uh, James Madison said, History records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, deceit, violent means possible to maintain their control over governments by controlling money and its issuance. John Adams said there are two ways to conquer and control a nation. One is by the sword, the other is by debt. Napoleon said when a government is dependent upon bankers for money, which is what we have today, they and not the leaders of the government control the situation since the hand that gives is above the hand that takes. Money has no motherland. And that's what we have today, this huge banking cartel that has no motherland. Um, Financiers are without patriotism and without decency. Their sole object is gain. You're listening to attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, The Financial Hijacking of America. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So the... The IMF and the Bank for International Settlements now are indeed in charge of the whole system. In September 2009, the G20 met, G20 countries met in Pittsburgh and authorized the IMF to issue $300 billion in um, SDRs, which are special drawing rights. So it's a, basically a global currency that everybody else will have to borrow. And if indeed, this, the intent, it was announced then in Pittsburgh that this would give the dollar a chance to work out its problems. In other words, the idea was to not have the dollar be the reserve currency for the world anymore, 
allowing our currency to collapse like everybody else so we could get reduced to a third world country like everyone else. Um, and then the SDR would re- replace the dollar as global reserve currency. That's not actually going to happen anytime soon, but th- that's the intent here as a global currency and a global regulator, which is the Bank for International Settlements. This, this is a speech from President Jean-Claude Trichet two weeks ago. Uh, he said he called for global governance under the G20 and the Bank for International Settlements to avoid another financial crisis. And he suggested that the head of this unelected governing body, which those are my terms, of course, would be the Global Economy Meeting, a policy steering committee under the umbrella of the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. And before that, in in April of 2009, the G20 nations met in London, and they agreed to be regulated by the Financial Stability Board, which would be based in um, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. And all the countries on a handshake, I mean, this should have been a treaty at the very least, but um, our president, along with everybody else, shook hands and agreed that they would agree to these certain standards and codes set by the board, which is just a bunch of committees. It kind of reminds you of communist Russia. You know, it's all kind of done by committee. Nothing democratic about this. What these standards and codes cover is incredibly broad. I mean, it's things like economies and um, anything financial is covered by these standards and codes. So we've essentially given up our right to set our own standards and codes. I think really what we should do is... um, require that that be passed as a treaty so that at least Congress is aware of what we just gave away. But that was all kind of secret, and nobody knew knew what was going on. So if they succeed in doing what they seem to be doing, which is to require all countries to comply with a global regulator and to borrow from a global central bank, then we will be reduced to a third-world country like everybody else. And you can see that in the EU right now where... All these nations cannot issue their own, they can't issue euros, and they can't borrow from their own central banks. So that's Greece's problem. They can't issue their own currency, and they can't borrow from their own central bank. So now, just this week, the um, European Monetary Union, the European Central Bank, agreed to do quantitative easing, meaning they're going to print money and lend it to Greece. But... They're not even a country, and here's this central bank that's not even part of your country that you have to borrow from that's issuing the money that you borrow. Now, who are they going to lend it to? I mean, all these different European countries are going to be arguing with each other. Their Germans aren't going to like what they're lending to Greece, and they're not going to like the interest rate. I mean, it's going to be very unworkable, it seems to me. At least our Fed... They do quantitative easing, but they don't tell anybody. You know, so I mean, it really is fiat money in the sense that fiat is by order of the king. So they really are the king, and they say we don't have to tell you, and we'll give it to whoever we feel needs it. But in the EU, they're going to have to be totally transparent because they don't actually have governing authority. So you can see that that's where we're tending, anyway, is giving up the ability to issue our own currency. So the way to get out of this is somehow we have to get that power back, the power to create our own money. We can do it. The direct way would be to have Congress just issue the money, which they're allowed to do under the Constitution. They gave that power away to the Federal Reserve in 1913. 
But the trouble is that Congress is owned by the banks. I mean, we can talk about all kinds of things we'd like to have Congress to do, but, but they're just not going to do it. Um, but where we do still have some control is on the state level. So that's where I think we need to start is locally with publicly owned banks, uh, state-owned banks. This actually happened for 100 years before the American Revolution. We did issue our own money. The colonists issued their own money. The 13 different colonies had their own different systems. And according to Benjamin Franklin, that's why the colonies were doing so well. I mean, we just had this wilderness that we turned into this very productive, abundant place, but different uh, historians remarked on it. How, how could it that be that we, we turned it into a, a, a luxurious uh, place without any money? We didn't have gold and silver. All we did was print these little receipts, and the governments would pay them for goods and services, and that's, that was the basis of the money supply. Well, the best of those systems was in Pennsylvania. Some of them did just print and spend, print and spend, and that was inflationary, like the northern colonies did that. But Benjamin Franklin's colony had the best of the models, and this is the one I think we should follow, um, where the colony owned its own bank. So instead of just spending, 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 what they did was they printed a certain amount of money and they lent it to the farmers. Before that, nobody wanted to go to Pennsylvania because there was no money there. They didn't have gold and silver. They had to borrow from the British bankers, and the British bankers didn't even have, a, have banks there. So there just was no medium of exchange. So the government got this idea that they would lend to the farmers. They printed these little receipts called scrip and lent them at a better interest rate than they could get from the British so let's say you would print $105. You would lend $100 to the farmers at 5% interest, spend the other $5 on things that the government needed, roads and bridges and stuff. So now you have $105 out there in the system, which all comes back as principal and interest. You can then lend the same $100, spend the same $5 over and over, so you never have to inflate the system. It's totally mathematically sound and self-contained. And, of course, the interest goes back to the public, which means... In that case, it replaced totally the need for taxes. They paid no taxes during the time this system was in place. Just the interest from these loans was enough to keep the government going. And they had, they had no government debt, no taxes, and prices remained stable. They did not inflate. So it was a great system until, of course, King George stepped in and said we couldn't do it anymore. And according to Benjamin Franklin and others, that was what we actually fought the revolution for. I mean, it was technically about a tea tax, but the problem was that the tea tax was owed in a currency we had no control over. We had to borrow British banknotes from the Bank of England, putting us in debt, just like a third world country today that has to borrow from the IMF. And so there was a sudden... Uh, recession and uh, depression, actually, and, and so the people rebelled and went back to printing their own money. That was considered an act of rebellion, and then that prompted the revolution. So we fought it to preserve our own money supply, but we lost the right, although we won the, the war for complicated reasons that I can't go into, but it's all in here if you want to buy my book. So today, there is one state that does this, North Dakota. I started writing about this like two years ago. And at that time, there were four states that were still solvent. You know, So I would say, well, look, it's one of four states. And they'd say, well, look, there's three other states. So what's their excuse? And then there were three states. And then there were two states. Today, there's only one state that actually is turning a surplus. And that is North Dakota. And it also has the lowest unemployment rate in the country. 
they make low interest loans for students. They make one percent loans for farmers, startup farmers. They partner with the other banks, so the other banks actually like it. They don't consider it competitive. They sort of act as the Federal Reserve for their state. So basically, what they have done is escape the credit crisis. They escaped the Wall Street crisis by setting up their own credit system. And the, the reason they did that, they set it up in 1919 specifically because they were suffering the same sort of thing that we're suffering today. They were losing their farms to the Wall Street bankers. And when they figured that out, that it was actually a ruse to get their farms, the banks were connected to the railroads, were connected to the granaries, and the granaries weren't taking their grain, even though it was good grain. And they realized that there was an actual intent to get their property. And when they realized that, they banded together, formed this nonpartisan league, as they called it, and, um, and managed to set up their own bank. So all states could do this, and I think they should do this. We could have our own separate publicly owned banking system, and then we can just forget Wall Street, set up a better mousetrap, and ignore the old one. In North Dakota, the bank is set up as it's called North Dakota doing business as the Bank of North Dakota. So that means technically all of the assets of the state are the assets of the bank. So they have no capital problem. They've got their capital recovered. And by law, all of the um, revenues of the state and of the local governments are deposited into this Bank of North Dakota. So they have a huge deposit base and a huge capital base. Um, So they're very stable, a very good investment, actually. So among other advantages, for one thing, if you're a publicly owned bank in North Dakota, they have a mission statement. And they say that our mission is to serve the state, to help the farmers, to uh, develop energy, etc. So they have these certain missions that are for the public. The intent here is to serve, serve the community. And so they can be held to that. So they can take the long-range view. You know, they can think in terms of a 10-year plan, whereas a private bank, by law, has to serve their shareholders, which means they have to do whatever will make the most money quarterly. Like, they're looking at their three-month profits. And so even if they wanted to, they couldn't really invest in some long-range project that would be good for the community. If it'll make more money for them to speculate, then they have to speculate rather than make loans to small businesses, which might be risky because that's their business model. Well, a public entity has a different business model. It's designed to serve the public. So they can have in their mission statement that they will help small businesses, et cetera, all those things that we we all know we desperately need. Plus, in North Dakota, they pay a real nice dividend every every year back to the state. So they're actually a money-generating institution for the state. Instead of having the interest drawn out of the system, which which is what causes the banking system to be a Ponzi scheme, in a state-owned system, the profits go back to the center. So that means that we, the people, pay less taxes because it, it just gives our state more money. Uh, so besides that, you don't have to worry about these bonuses, commissions, high-paid CEOs. They don't have toxic collateral. They don't have shareholders demanding short-term profits. So let's consider what we could do in California. So California has projected revenues of $89 billion. Uh, they have over $18 billion in deposits, which could be their startup deposit base. I think people would flood to the Bank of California because we're so burned out on the Wall Street banks. 
Um, the treasurer manages an investment pool of $71 billion. I mean, here we are, $26 billion in the red, and the treasurer has $71 billion that they can't touch. The reason they can't touch it is it's all earmarked for specific purposes. So it seems to me you could take that $71 billion, and let's say you took 10% of it, and you invested that as capital in your, your bank. You're not going to spend it. It's only equity. So it's an equity investment in the Bank of California. It will pay a dividend to the pension funds, et cetera, who have their money in the pool. It seems to me that we have a huge potential that we could tap up to create our own bank. And if we had our own bank, we could do like other banks do. Instead of borrowing at 4.7%, which is the average of California debt right now, we could be borrowing at 0.2% like the banks do. Right now, there are five states that actually have bills pending for state-owned banks. Washington, Michigan, Illinois, Massachusetts, and Virginia. And then there are three other states that are talking about it. So I think California, too, should have such a bill and that we could, in this way, solve our problems. You've been listening to Ellen Brown. Today's show has been The Financial Hijacking of America. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, and author. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System, and How We Can Break Free. She is the author of many books on natural healing as well as numerous articles on the financial system. She developed an interest in the developing world and its problems while living abroad for 11 years in Kenya, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Today's show was from her presentation at the Understanding Deep Politics Conference in Santa Cruz, California on May 16, 2010. Visit Ellen Brown's website at www.webofdebt.com. That's webofdebt.com. Thanks to Hamook and Ken Jenkins of 911tv.org for today's audio. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628.